Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Your Honor, at this point, I would like to call to the stand my client, the defendant in this case, the bear who has been wrongfully accused of stalking a hiker. May I ask you to please state your name? Before I answer, this chair is really too hard for me. Okay, um, here, try it with this cushion. No, that's too soft. Okay, I'm going to fold up my suit jacket. Try sitting on that. Ah, that's just right. Okay, please state your name. Aloysius Kissyfer. That's odd, because I've noted that many media accounts refer to you as Tasting Bear. That's weird. Why did they call me that? The state alleges that you put your mouth on the back of a hiker's leg. Tell the court what was going through your mind when you did that. To the best of my recollection, I was bending over looking at something, and she kind of jammed her calf into my mouth. And I was like, whoa, this is bold and aggressive behavior. These crazy humans, right? Is it true that in the past you've engaged in other erratic behavior? That depends on your definition. You busted up a Starbucks in Granby? Oh, I love that. They serve me seven espresso frappuccinos and then blame me when I go nuts. Okay, is there anything else you'd like to tell the court? Just that trials like this are a symptom of what's wrong with America. Our country is in serious trouble. We don't have victories anymore. We used to have victories, but we don't have them. When was the last time anybody saw us beating, let's say, China in a trade deal? They kill us. I beat China all the time. All the time. Excuse me, are you just reciting a Donald Trump speech? Maybe. Your Honor, I'd like a moment to confer with my client. In the meantime, here's the scramble. And now his shocking new memoir is a raw account of the booze-filled life of the ultimate rock goddess. Wait, that's Chrissy Hind. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, on the scramble, one of the things we like to do, particularly when there's sort of been uh, a confused set of news reports about something, is take Monday to straighten those out. So uh, in just a second, we're going to tell you a little bit about, you may have seen, it's so viral on the Internet, uh, the encounter of a woman uh, with a bear at the uh, Sessions Woods Wildlife Management Area uh, in Burlington. Um, One of the things that we've sort of discovered is, A, Um, The woman's role in all of this has been badly misunderstood, and she has been subject to a lot of really unwarranted bullying and abuse on the Internet. Uh, You're going to meet her in just a second. But also the story of this bear, what what else this bear has done, what this bear's behavior really may represent. It's also, I think, something people don't understand that well. So uh, I hope over the next uh, 15 or uh, 20 minutes or so we can shed some real light on that. After that, we're going to start uh, we're going to talk to U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal. Uh, he has been pondering uh, and therefore not really taking a public position on uh, the Iran deal, even as even as senators around him are staking out their positions. We're going to talk to him about why he's taking so long uh, and what he's thinking about, what uh, the variables, the ponderables are for him. And then lastly, we're going to talk to a Norwegian journalist who uh, talked to 1,000 people all over the world. Uh, not so much a poll, more a series of informal conversations with people about how they perceive America. America, what they think about the United States and some of the things that um, 
that he, that he found. Well, they, some of them may surprise you, some of them may not. So that's the plan for the show today. Uh, let me tell you about the beginning here. Then we're going to talk to Stephanie Rivkin. She is a resident uh, of Berlin. She encountered two bears while walking at Sessions Woods Wildlife Management Area Friday. Uh, we're also talking to Paul Rigo. He's a wildlife biologist with the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. But we're going to start with Stephanie Rivkin. A lot of you have seen the video. If you haven't seen the video, watch the video just because it is absolutely remarkable. Um, no matter how you process it, uh, it's something that you probably haven't seen before. But Stephanie Rivkin, first of all, thanks for agreeing to be on the show today. And thank you for having me. So uh, just uh, in, a, in a quick nutshell, tell, us, uh, tell people what happened. Um, I was just hiking in a hiking trail where hikers are allowed, mm. and there happened to also be bears. Mm. Um, and I came across two of them who um, came out on a trail behind me, kind of startled me with the noise they were making. And I kind of froze, took some video, took some pictures, tried backing away, and, you know, they came closer than I guess is, is normal for bear behavior. And um, I made it out of there okay. I, I spoke with the DEP people at, um, at Sessions and showed them the video, um, which I thought was also a very remarkable encounter and amazing. I couldn't even believe it happened. And I was so amazed and impressed with the bear's behavior that I – immediately said before even showing them the video, like, please don't hurt these bears. They didn't hurt me. They let me out. It was cool. Um, and just, you know, judging by his face after seeing the video um, and his response to immediately close the trails, you know, I knew it wasn't going to be good. And uh, I was immediately at fault, you know, for this bear and uh, having to be put down. And I, I didn't feel good about it at all, um, but I left there knowing that, you know, maybe another hiker on the trail might be saved from an encounter, and uh, it's just a very hard position to be in because I'm an animal lover and a nature lover, and I always, you know, have been going there since I was little. I've felt very safe, and I think other people have too. It's just such a beautiful spot. We should say just a little bit more about what happens in this video. So there's two bears, and one of them kind of hangs back. The other one yes. comes towards you and then moves back, comes towards you and moves back. So there's this kind of approach and retreat thing that the bear does, and the bear seems to get a little bit closer uh, right. and more into your personal space every time he comes to visit you. He definitely did, and um, on my part, I didn't have any food on me. I didn't have perfume. I was just walking with a bottle of water and my cell phone and a knife, um, the closer he came to me, I either stayed still or I backed away. I didn't make sudden movements. I didn't yell. I didn't throw anything. I didn't. I just didn't feel safe doing any of those things, so I didn't do them. And whatever protocol is for bear encounters up close and personal, I just wasn't aware. And as a hiker, I definitely should have been. So I believe that um, my lack of knowledge on how to handle a bear situation probably is, uh, you know, why a lot of people are so upset right now. But um, when he was near me, I didn't feel threatened each time. It wasn't scary. I didn't physically feel in danger. You know, when I was videotaping, I did it. Only, well, one thing was because I was alone on a trail and there were bears, and I wasn't sure what was going to happen, but two, because it was just freaking amazing. Um, and when I, I went after the fact and watched the video and saw how close his teeth came to my leg and saw all the little details that, you know, the professional people saw and made the decision, you know, I, I felt a little, I felt differently after having watched it than having experienced it, if that makes any sense. No, I, I get that. And actually, what, so what you're saying is actually watching the video is more terrifying than what you went through. Right, right. I wasn't terrified at all until, um, you know, there were a couple moments, brief, brief moments, but most of it was calm and, and pretty just amazing. And I was, you know, I was enjoying the experience. I was, you know, sweet talking the bears a little bit. Don't, don't hurt me. You know, I'm, I'm a 
I'm nice, whatever heck I said. But I'm, I, I know bears don't speak English and understand me, and I don't know why I was talking to them. Um, I've been asked that question, and I don't have a, an answer for anything that I did, only to say that I did in the moment what I thought was right. Um, but for the bears, um, the consequence of my actions is what I'm sorry about. Well, I, I wouldn't beat yourself up too much. But I mean, you really didn't do anything all that wrong. And, and I mean, we, we are glossing over the fact that, that certainly the, the hallmark moment of this encounter is one. I mean, you've, you're kind of alluding to it, but the bear puts his mouth uh, up to the back of your leg. And mm-hmm. you see his kind of his lips retract, exposing his teeth as he's, uh, I guess, pressing towards your leg. I mean, uh, on video, that's a a pretty alarming sight. Um, And I don't know how you could possibly be blamed for having that happen to you. Well, because I stood still, I didn't scare the bear away. There's a number of reasons why people have made me feel that I'm definitely in the wrong for this encounter. And, you know, a lot of people said I shouldn't even have been on the trail. <laughs> but I've really it's just been something I've enjoyed my whole life. And um, I've, I've just been felt I felt comfortable there, never having even thought I would come across a bear. I just wasn't prepared. So um, when I did see the bear come very close to me, staying still, just made sense. Uh, I don't think it frightened him at all. I don't think he felt threatened. So I think for for each individual in this circumstance, they're going to have to make the decision that's right for them. I don't think it's, you know, textbook, you need to do this. Mm-hmm. Because it, it, you know, I read in another article recently that a woman yelled and screamed and, you know, the bear attacked her. So I don't. I just don't know what's best for everybody else. Right. I, I mean, don't know and, that what I did was best. Right. And it's not like we have a treaty with the bears. Like if you do this one thing, it's right. going to come out the same way every <laughs> single time. So um, first of all, I just want to say on behalf of the human race, I'm really sorry that you have been cyberbullied as much as you have. And it seems as though people have not taken time to understand this situation. And it's a shame. Uh, you didn't. I will say on behalf of the human race, you didn't do anything wrong. I mean, may, you. maybe your bear encounter behavior isn't is isn't letter perfect. We're about to find out from a wildlife biologist what he thinks. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly not the kind thing that you should have been bullied over. And it's pretty clear that your sympathies lie very strongly with the bears. So the people assuming that you're some kind of angel of death, uh, you know, visiting vengeance upon some bear is insane. I mean, that's pretty that's obvious. That's how I feel. But everybody is entitled to their opinion. So no. I have to give them that. No, not, they're not entirely entitled to their opinion. They're entitled <laughs> to be a bully. Uh, Paul Rigo's with us. He's a wildlife biologist with the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Um, so um, well, let's start with the we should say this bear has a history. We're going to be talking about that in just a second. But, Paul, let's talk about the encounter itself. You've had a chance to watch this video. I'm assuming this is not normal behavior for a bear, the way that this bear keeps kind of invading her personal space a little bit more. Oh, definitely. It's extremely rare for a, for a bear to be that interested in a human. Um, we certainly have bears that that are indifferent to the presence of humans, but for one to be that interested, to come that close, is an extremely uh, rare situation. Now, bears... My understanding is bears tend to be dangerous under two sets of circumstances. One of them is if they're defending something, they're protecting cubs or some other aspect of their territory. And the other one is if they become predatory, they start seeing humans as a viable food source. Do do I have that more or less right? Yeah, that's more or less right. Uh, With defending, with with, uh, grizzly bears, it's defending cubs. With black bears, that's not so much an issue, uh, Mm -hmm. but perhaps defending food. Um. The In this case, the behavior that we saw on the video that was taken, um, we saw some aspects of true aggression by that bear. Um, there there was uh, what we call jaw popping 
At one point, the hackles were up, the ears were laid back. Um, the fact that this bear, any time um, Stephanie turned her back, the bear approached. Mm -hmm. So the bear was definitely testing, and that was very, con very, very concerning behavior. Right. So one of the things that uh, animal behaviorists look at in a situation like that is the bear may be testing this situation out. Like, how much trouble is it going to be for me to, you know, get what I possibly might want out of this situation? Or is am I going to be, is it going to be more trouble than it's worth? Yes, that's that's exactly true. And, and that's classic with black bears. Um, even though they have the power, the speed, the strength to probably go after any human, um, many of other the animals they could prey on in the forest, uh, they don't just go forward without testing. It's a slow process for them to, to test and to be a predator. So, uh, you know, in terms of the advice, the unsolicited advice that Stephanie's getting on the Internet, I mean, we, one does read this, that one thing you can do is make noise, make yourself not worth the trouble. But I wouldn't think with a bear that's doing this kind of testing, that there's an ironclad guarantee that the encounter is going to come out great for you. Well, yeah, it's it's um, some of the things that Stephanie did were, were fine. I mean, the bears were aware that she was there. She did try to back off, which, um, you know, not being there, I don't know how active she was doing that, but trying to back off. Um, and uh, then... If the bears don't leave, then trying to be more aggressive or offensive towards the bears. Mm -hmm. But so. in, in a way, the fact that she got out means that the encounter went basically, you know, as well as given right. what the bear was doing, things worked out OK. Yeah. And it, you, we never know if it would have been another person, uh, perhaps a, a younger child. Mm -hmm. um, things could have turned out differently um, if she didn't continue to, to back off. We, we don't know for sure. Betsy Kaplan, our producer, walks on those trails, and she always carries a box of Kentucky Fried Chicken with her. I'm so <laughs> worried now. Um, so, Stephanie, does that make you feel any better? Um, I'm I'm pretty much okay with the situation, mm -hmm. no matter which way it goes, just because um, I'm not an expert on bears, mm -hmm. and um, I'm going to let the people who are make the decision on right. what's right to do. Um, the petitions that are going around, obviously there are a lot of animal lovers in the state, and I don't blame them for starting the petitions, but in the end... Um, that is a hiking trail, and there are children there. There are, you know, runners. At any point in time, somebody could be at danger. So maybe it shouldn't. Maybe sessions would should no longer be available to hikers if it's a wildlife preserve. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe something there needs to be some clarity on who's allowed to be there: mm -hmm. the bears or the people. Oh yeah, right. so we've got this bear, and as Paul is saying, you're seeing stomping, posturing, jaw popping, a lot of behavior that, to an animal behaviorist, to a wildlife biologist, is alarming and indicative uh, of uh, of possible aggression. The ears back, the hackles bared, the you can see the gums and the teeth. It's not a good thing usually with a wild animal. So, Paul, the other thing about this bear is he kind of has a rap sheet, right? Yeah, this this bear definitely has a rap sheet. We've we many of the almost every bear that we handle, we ear tag, so they're identifiable to us. And uh, we've dealt with this bear from the time uh, in March when we handled it in the winter den. Um, it was within the uh, perimeter fence of the Bradley Airport in uh, June, I believe it was. Um, it was implicated in breaking into a home in Granby later that month. Um, and it it actually chased a, a person in, into a business and came right up 
right up to the um, door of the business pressing on the door. So it's it's had a lot of issues already in a very short mm-hmm. period of time. Um, we yeah, so just to make clear, Stephanie is not the first woman this bear has followed. The bear followed a woman, as you say, into an office building in, in Windsor, right? Right. We followed a woman into an office building in Windsor. After, after the news about uh, Stephanie's event, uh, I received a call this morning from a, a woman who um, had these two bears in her yard last Wednesday, and the year-tagged bear came up on her deck and pushed its nose against her screen door with her sitting one foot on the other side of the screen door. So it's definitely a bear that's that's developed bad behaviors and um, probably not, not the best bear to, you know, leaving, leave walking and living with our populace. Right. So there, and at this point, uh, what you want to do really is uh, capture the bear and euthanize it. That's exactly what we hope to do. Yeah. And, and I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think we sort of made it clear why this is necessary. Uh, but, I mean, if there's anything else you want to say, obviously you don't want to wait until the bear crosses another barrier and actually physically maul somebody. Right. Well, well, we have, I mean, now I've dealt with bears for going on 30 years, and we have thought long and hard about our policies about um when we just give people advice, education about bears, mm. to what things bears do that really are uh, a public safety threat. Mm. And this is a case where where this bear actually um, has had two issues that we, we feel are public safety threats strong enough to cause us to consider euthanizing it. And if I might... Um, Earlier, um, there was a question about who's at fault and mm. people blaming Stephanie. Um, I would strongly suspect that this bear has developed that behavior, um, attraction, uh, or at least an indifference of humans um, through being finding food around residential areas. It's just a classic case of the of the bear getting habituated to humans and and losing its fear of humans. So. I would say if anybody's at fault, it's anybody that didn't do a good job securing their trash cans or didn't put their bird feeders away. Right. So don't feed the bears, uh, either intentionally or unintentionally. Do we, I know there's a study underway right now. Do we know what the bear population in Connecticut is now? Yes, we do. Um, We've been working with the University of Connecticut to do a, it's kind of a high-tech mark capture study using genetics um, over the last few years. Um, plus some of the radio telemetry work that that we've been involved in within our department, and uh, we're we're getting a very good handle on the bear population. We believe it's in the neighborhood of six to seven hundred bears statewide now. Yeah, and are they geographically concentrated? I mean, most of these stories seem to come out of the northwest yeah, part it, of the state. Exactly, they're they're primarily in the northwest part of the state. Um, although we receive bear reports, uh, legitimate bear reports from from every town in the state, but it's it's concentrated in the northwest part of the state, but that range is expanding every year as the bear population is expanding every year. Now, you know, uh, Stephanie raised a really interesting point, which is that uh, DEEP uh, has sort of two goals that can a little bit be in collision with one another. One of them is to have areas where people can walk around and enjoy nature. Uh, The other one is to keep people safe as the kind of natural population changes and sometimes changes into a slightly more dangerous area. So how how are you going to balance that question out? She was wondering, you know, will Sessions Woods eventually be safe to walk in again? Well, um, the, these bears can travel, you know, 
dozens of miles in just a couple days. So um, it is a hard balance. Um, We would hope that the bears are not hanging out on our trails at this point. Um, In fact, we received a sighting over the weekend off of our property. Mm. Um, But there's no magic boundaries. Bears don't know boundaries between state property, private property. It's all forest to them. Um, so our response right now is to, to monitor all the sightings we receive, and we, we do, do receive dozens of sightings every day, and to try to determine the location of this particular bear in the, in the coming days or weeks. Are you running out of places to kind of put bears? In other words, sometimes bears are, you know, tranquilized and relocated. Uh, do you, I mean, six, 700 bears, and a lot of them are, want, are traveling these huge distances every couple of days. I mean, I, I'm just wondering whether there's enough open space to relocate a bear at this point. Well, we don't relocate bears in the classic sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just get them, tranquilize them, capture them, trap them, to get them out of uh, local problem situations, like like a bear on uh, Asylum Avenue mm-hmm. in West Hartford is not an appropriate place for a bear, especially if it's causing traffic issues. Um, our, our response is to handle, when we handle bears, we try to move them less than 10 miles. Um, we don't try to move them to some magic town in northwest Connecticut. That, that's Park Hampstead, by the way. That, so that so that's a have, magic town. <laughs> that doesn't have a, pop, a population of bears because we know the people in Heartland, Park Hampstead, Colebrook, Winstead, they all have their bear population. Um, plus, um, the bears don't stay where where they're released. They continue to move around, and they tend to home back to the area from where they were captured. Mm-hmm. So we're talking to Paul Rigo, a wildlife biologist with the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. We're also talking to Stephanie Rivkin. She is the Connecticut resident who encountered two bears while walking at Sessions Woods Wildlife Management Area on Friday, taped or videoed the encounter, uh, and which became viral and became a sensation and which I think uh, in which her role was badly misunderstood. Stephanie Rivkin, uh, you ha- I've got a wildlife biologist sitting right here. Do you have uh, any more questions for him about your own future explorations of the Connecticut landscape? Um, I don't. He was pretty clear on every question I had without having to ask it. And um, also, I'm just really hoping that Sessions Woods uh, does reopen for hiker use. And um, in the future, maybe uh, I'll tell everybody I know to carry bear mace. And um, I think this just brings out awareness. I mean, I made a whole summer through without encountering a bear almost. So um, I think in the future, just me and everybody else who plans on entering Connecticut woods, we just need to be knowledgeable about how to handle situations that we know nothing about. And this is a great way to uh, teach everybody a lesson. Me the hard way. Everybody else kind of just gets it secondhand. <laughs> so well, Paul Rigo, she makes a, a, another interesting point, which is that our experiences of the Connecticut landscape are changing. I mean, I'm a longtime inveterate day hiker around Connecticut. And, you know, I mean, first of all, if you want to be safe, hike with me. I never see anything. Uh, I've had a moose in my neighborhood, which is off Asylum Avenue, and I didn't see the moose. But anyway, um, uh, but the reality is that uh, uh, somebody hiking somewhere in Connecticut on a, on a DEP trail, one of the blue trails, whatever, is more likely now to see a bear, to see a moose, see something like that, than ever before. It's kind of an argument for a little bit more education of the type you're doing right now. Um, well, it's definitely an argument for education, and we've put great effort into that, um, giving talks, signage, our website, um, various magazine outlets um so but that that's something that that we do need to continue 
Um, it's definitely true that uh, the bear population is, is growing rapidly. There's more moose than there was 50 years ago. So encounters with these animals are definitely on, on the upswing. Why is the bear population growing? Where are they coming from? Well, um, they're responding to long-term um, improvement in habitat. I mean, our, our state was, um, uh, the, the forest in our state was cleared largely 150 years ago for agriculture and other purposes. Um, with the Industrial Revolution, people moved off of farms, coal was no longer produced in our state, and so our forest grew back. And so that, in a combination with um, the advent of wildlife management and agencies like mine that that manage and regulate what people can do with animals and providing protection has allowed the population to grow. And it, we predict it will continue to grow um, pretty rapidly in the coming years because there's at least two-thirds of the state that's still very good habitat for them that, that they haven't moved into. Um, as long as we have you here so we don't have to call you back in the next time somebody uh, has an encounter with a moose. All right, so we know with the bear um, kind of do do what we talk about. I mean, if necessary. Make your, make make your presence known. Um, back off. If the, if the bear um, does show an interest you, to you, continues to follow you, then try to make yourself look large and offensive. Um, if you have a backpack or other items, drop those, continue to back off. Um, and if the bear still follows you, just continue to be offensive. Throw rocks, throw sticks, yell. And with the moose? Um, moose are, are a different story. Um, they are actually, they're a one where defense of the offspring, the cows defending cubs, mm -hmm. is, is extremely serious. Um, so them, they're too back off whenever you get the get the hint of a of a moose in the area um for most of us shelter in the form of a house or a car is usually close by all right well listen paul rigo a wildlife biologist for the connecticut department of energy and environmental protection thanks so much for your time today you're welcome and stephanie rivkin uh the woman who encountered these two bears one of whom was behaving really rather peculiarly uh in the sessions woods wildlife management area thank you for joining us today you know, don't read the comments anymore. I'm not. I'm not. I'm done. <laughs> Stay off the Internet. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with yet another topic. I'm actually at this moment not entirely sure which one after this break. So be careful not to utter a sound that might disturb. There's something about yelling makes a bear get compelling to want to take your leg and bite it. All right, this is the Monday Scramble. Uh, we've got two segments left planned for you. Let me tell you what they're going to be. One of them is going to be a conversation with Rene Zagrafos. He's the author of Attractive 
unattractive Americans, how the world sees America. This is the result of a thousand conversations uh, with people around the world uh, about how, in fact, they do view Americans. We are also planning a conversation, I say planning advisedly, with uh, U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal, uh, who is uh, in the process of making up his mind uh, on the Iran deal. Uh, and so we're going to uh, go, I think, to Renee Zagrafos in just a second. But because she called up and possibly as a way of getting you all excited about our future conversation with Senator Blumenthal, here's uh, Betty uh, in Voluntown who called 860-275-7266. Let's get her on the air first here. Hi, Renee. Uh, hi, Betty. I'm sorry. That's okay. I understand. I also have my opinion on those people, but that's not for this. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so um, I really appreciate um, Senator Blumenthal, your being on the show and and discussing this really important topic for the constituents of Connecticut. Um, as Colin mentioned, I'm from Valentown, and I've had some wonderful opportunities to work with you on your campaign through Groton. And when you were running um, for senator, I had an opportunity to call the um, John Dankowski show, and one of my concerns was um, how we could be sure or how I could, as a constituent, be sure that you would truly represent the voices of Connecticut based on our previous experiences with Attorney General Lieberman, um, who had also run for senator and had seemed to lose the values of Connecticut as he progressed. So I'm interested really in hearing what your response will be and how you will listen to the constituents of Connecticut who support who support you signing the Iran deal. Okay, so he's not here right now, though. We'll make sure that he hears what you have to say. So why, just quickly before we switch gears here, why, why do you want him to support the Iran deal? Well, because I think it's a really good start on working through some efforts with Iran, and I think that we can see some better outcomes come, and I think that we really have some great opportunities to work on a global initiative to control nuclear arms. All right. Well, listen, thanks for your call. We'll be getting to uh, Senator Blumenthal in just a second. But I think right now what we're going to do is go over to Rene Zagrafos, uh, the author of Attractive, Unattractive Americans, How the World Sees America. As I say, this is the result of a thousand or so conversations uh, with people from other nations about how they view America. First of all, welcome to our show. Oh, thank you very much. And, and I, I I hope not to do anything stereotypically American over the course of this uh, conversation. So you spent seven years, is it, researching this book? Yeah, it's, it's about 10 years since I started this project. So, yeah, about ten, seven years I asked uh, people all over, all over the world about uh, the top, different topics about America. What, what was your incentive for doing that? Why did you want to find out what people think about Americans? You know, as an author, I have published uh, it's eight book now. Books now, and one book is uh, was about uh, Norway because I'm half Norwegian and half Greek, so I wonder what people thought about Norway. But during that process, I talked to a lot of American people who also wanted to know, you know, how they are, you know, looked at from abroad. And uh, and also when I asked people during my interviews for this Norwegian book, many people had, you know bad verdicts, you know, shallow comments and really strong hate against Americans and America uh, at that point of time. So I wanted to dig a little bit deeper to really understand what people really, really think about uh, America. That's the reason why I did it. So uh, the book is called uh, Attractive, Unattractive Americans. So uh, obviously you're investigating both polls, both possible uh, sets of attitudes. So uh, to whatever extent people find Americans attractive, what do they find attractive about them? You know, uh, one thing that that was actually a bit surprising to me was that uh, people all over the world are, you know, 
uh, very thankful for what Americans are doing abroad. You know, the, all the help they are giving to people who are in suffering from, you know, from illness, from from disasters like hurricanes and tsunamis. You know, Americans are there to help immediately. So, so that's what actually people are telling me to say. Tell the Americans thank you because they are actually doing a lot of help. They don't just, you know, do bad things abroad. So I think the Americans should be proud of what they are doing abroad. Um, yeah, so that that's one of the positive things, uh, you know, and all the you know the pride pride for people. Not many countries have have that pride that you have in America, you know, for the flag, for your family, for 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 your national, you know, for for, for your nation, for your uh, celebrities, you know, everything, you know, the pride, uh, the American pride, uh, teach people a lot. So a lot of people are, you know, they envy Americans uh, on, on that topic, actually. Although I would expect that to be a two-edged sword. I mean, in fact, I know it to be a two-edged sword. That when people come to, when people from other countries come to America, particularly people from other countries that aren't quite as comfortable with just these effusions of patriotic sentiment, these incredible displays of patriotism, or, or even things that we Americans take for granted, pledging allegiance to the flag at certain events and just, you know, and a lot of flag, flag waving. It can freak people out from other countries, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a balance. You know, it, it, it's, it's, um, it, it's, it's actually a balance there. So if, if you go, you know, to, to be, you know, go over the, the, the balance, people are, are a bit scared. That, that's, that's true. But at the same time, I think the balance, uh, the line is, uh, you know, higher than, than, uh, than most people think it is. So, so that, that's why they maybe be a bit scared, you know, because Americans, they can be, you know, proud of the country without being, you know, like um, nationalists, if you understand what I'm saying. Yes, and I would say that many of the other areas that we can think about are also balances. They are double-edged swords. I mean, for example, Americans, and I think you found this, Americans are known or thought to be friendly uh, in, in a kind of informal way. So when I, when I travel in France, I'm always aware of the fact that the French are a little bit more formal in certain situations that a waiter or a head waiter in France is much more of a professional, somebody who's really studied and prepared for his craft. He expects to be addressed as monsieur. He's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's just a different thing. And, and even though I'm aware of it, because I'm so American, <laughs> I forget and I start being friendly and informal in a way that's probably not entirely appropriate. So, or at least not, not the the way that he would he would interact with a French person. I assume that's those two things are there in your research too. Yeah, of course, of course. If they if they notice that you are a foreigner, they probably treat you a bit better. But but it's common knowledge all over the world that Americans are really polite when it comes to service in stores. If you go into a store in America, you get top service, and you don't find that everywhere else in the world. And especially France, people think. Many, people, many French people are quite rude because they are known to be rude. And, uh, but that's also because that's also, you know, I have another impression from, from French people because, because uh, I talk to them a lot, you know, I, I dig a lot. So if, if you, I think the rudeness maybe is a bit uh, frightness 
also. So so people just want to, you know, stay for themselves and are insecure when they meet, you know, new people and foreign tourists. Right. No, so, I, yeah. I, I think that's your next book, actually, because, I mean, I tra- I've traveled in France quite a bit the last few years. No one has ever been rude to me. I really haven't had that rudeness experience. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad, so glad to hear that. So that's, I mean, one of the things that you had to do in your book also is explore the distinction between what people say and what the reality is. I mean, people... Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. You know, in the, in the beginning of these books, I, I, could, I could write a book easily with just, you know, shallow comments about America. You know, uh, Americans are, yeah, they are killers. They bring their tanks all over the world and kill people. That's the shallow comments, you know not reflected comments I, I got in the beginning. But, you know, if, if you start to, 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 to talk to people, really, really talk to people, they have another story to tell you, that's for sure. So um, on the other hand, I mean, there are legitimate criticisms of uh, American foreign policy, legitimate criticisms uh, of, uh, I mean, uh, for example, uh, I just read a statistic that American children are 14 times more likely to die from gun violence than children in all the other developed countries. Um, uh, it's, cra- it's crazy. People think that the Mar- American society is something is wrong there, people are saying, all over the world. And, you know, you have so many people in prisons, you know, compared to how many citizens you are. It's like, I think it's almost four people per 100,000 residents who are killed by a gun in America. And that's you know, the the second is Italy with, you know, a house a person per hundred uh, thousand citizens. So, and, and in UK, it's almost no one. And Australia, who have changed the, the gun laws to, to be more strict, they are, you know, effectively have, you know, a, a better rate on their gun murders. So, so yes, people, people. And, you know, all the people in jail and all the violence you see from police officers and, you know, pe- people are worried about how the American society are at the moment. So, yeah. uh, Rene Zografos, the book sounds uh, fascinating. It's uh, attractive, unattractive Americans, how the world sees America. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal. I'm not a part of a redneck agenda. so many lies about the Iran deal. Our inspectors do not have to close their eyes and count to 100 before they go, look, come on, Fox News. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Zachary LaSala and Amanda Gallagher. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Merlin Olson. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff getting a bear drunk on cheap Chardonnay, visit our website, wnpr.org slash on tomorrow's show, the depressing world of obsolescence. And now, back to Colin. One of the many upsetting thoughts that I had while preparing to interview Rene Zagrafos is that increasingly the most visible American abroad will be Donald Trump, and they'll think we're, they'll, they'll think we're Donald Trump. We'll have even worse problems with our international image. All right, so joining us now is U- U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal, the senior U.S. Senator from Connecticut. Welcome to the show. Wonderful to be with you. Thanks for having me. So you have been uh, trying to decide uh, where you're going to come down on the Iran deal. Um, t- tell us what's what's holding you up. What's taking uh, extra time for you? 
I have two paramount objectives. One is to stop a nuclear-armed Iran, which would be a serious, severe threat to our national security. And the other is to keep us out of war, keep our nation from becoming involved again in a war, as we've seen over the last 14 years. And I have been digging into the details not just reading the agreement and the confidential or classified material, but also listening to scientific and diplomatic experts, administration, top officials, and opponents, and, of course, the people of Connecticut. I've benefited enormously from listening to the people of Connecticut, and I'll be doing so over the next days and maybe a couple of weeks. Um, because uh, uh, you're uh, not committed yet, that's, I think, increased pressure on you in some ways. And there are now advertisements flying around, actually, from both camps. Um, first of all, is that a problem for you, that, that there's suddenly advertisements that feature you in particular, either people saying you know, that you better not approve the deal or that you had better? I am going to make this decision, Colin, based on conscience and conviction. It's probably one of the most complex and consequential decisions I'll have to make as a United States senator. And I'm going to make this decision based on what I think is right for our country, our nation, our national defense and security, and our national interests. And I can assure you politics will play no part in this decision. I'm going to focus on doing my job, which is listening to the experts and listening to people of Connecticut and then reaching a decision. Now, let me uh, just say that for me, and I haven't done the kind of research that you've done. I, I, you know, I don't have the kind of depth on this issue. Nothing close. I have very much the very shallow talk show host's understanding of this issue. So at that level, I see it as kind of a slam dunk or kind of a layup that, you know, uh, it deals with the issue of the plutonium. It deals with the issue of the uranium. It deals with the issue pretty effectively, I think, of inspections. I mean, to me, those are are the big three. Uh, On top of that, we've actually accomplished something through diplomacy for once, which seems to be harder and harder to do here in the 21st century. So for me, uh, I'm thinking that if I were in Dick Blumenthal's shoes, I'd be A, wearing better shoes, but B, also be able, you know, right away to know what I wanted to do. So tell me, what what are the holdout questions for you? What are the things that, that make you tap the brakes on this? There are a number of clear weaknesses in this agreement, and no agreement is perfect, as the administration is the first to say. It lasts for a limited duration of time, 10 to 15 years. It potentially legitimizes nuclear weaponization by the Iranians at the end of that time and a nuclear program during that time, although for civilian purposes, it provides a somewhat cumbersome mechanism for approving inspections if the Iranians object, requiring a vote of the IAEA commission and also a waiting time. The now well-known 24 days, where the Iranians can potentially obstruct detection. There are a number of those kinds of objections, not the least, is what's done with the amounts of revenue. Disagreement on how much, $50 billion to $150 billion. can they simply use that amount of money to make more mischief, to support extremists? and potentially 
disrupt the stability insofar as it exists of the Middle East. There are a number of issues, and with all those issues, of course, the question always is, what's the alternative? And is there a better alternative? Can there be a better deal? What's the consequence of rejecting this deal? And I strongly favor diplomacy. And one of my central objectives is to keep our nation out of war. Well, you know, yeah, I've seen in some of your remarks you've kind of suggested, well, if this deal didn't fly, that you know, historically sometimes you can go back and get a, a better deal, a better tr- treaty. This isn't really a, a treaty, but get a better a deal. I mean, does that really seem realistic to you? I was trying to think of situations where that really happened, where a deal fell apart and a better deal got negotiated internationally. I couldn't really think of anything, but then once again— Well, there have been previous deals, previous nonproliferation negotiations with the Russians, for example, and with a longer show, I could go into all of the arcane historical details. I know they would be fascinating to you. I'd be riveted. But but very, very seriously, uh, that's one of the central questions, Colin. You just obviously hit on one of the central questions. What is the feasibility and likelihood of a better deal or any other deal if this one is rejected. What happens, in fact, to this deal if the United States rejects it? Do the Europeans continue with it? The revenue flowing to the Iranians? The sanctions lifted? What would be the binding effect on the Iranians? And alternatively, if the United States continues with this deal, what happens if there's a need for enforcement and potential sanctions snapped back. How likely is that to occur? How significant a deterrent to this weaponization is it? This issue is not only consequential, it's complex. I know there are passionate views on both sides, and I'm trying to dig down as dispassionately as I can to what the risks and the costs are. And believe me, there are risks and costs on both sides. So actually, we just got a tweet from Liam, who, who's kind of referencing something that you just talked about, too, and something that was on my mind as well, which is that there are obviously other parties to this uh, besides uh, Iran and the United States. There are other countries participating in the san- sanction program right now who probably will stop no matter what the United States does. So if we don't participate in the deal and the big players, um, the other big players drop their sanctions, doesn't that at that point give us no leverage whatsoever? There is still enormous economic might at our disposal in our sanctions. And in fact, one of the areas that I think needs some clarification, I've been pressing for it, is what happens to sanctions on continued terrorism or violation of human rights. That's a still somewhat ambiguous area, which I think needs to be clarified. But Sanctions are not necessarily an all-or-nothing thing, and again, this whole area of sanctions is itself enormously complex. I've pressed for years for tighter, stricter sanctions. I was one of the leaders in the Senate for the bill that provided for these heightened sanctions, and everyone now agrees that's what has brought the Iranians to the table. So the administration was resistant. It eventually agreed to those sanctions. I'm hopeful that we will regard this agreement as a step, not a final answer, 
but a step forward. It has to be enforced vigorously and vigilantly if it is adopted, and I expect it will be. Uh, even if the president has to veto it, I think his veto will be upheld. But eventually, we will have to assure as a nation that this agreement is credibly and effectively enforced. Well, you know, uh, U.S. Senator Dick Blumenthal, you know that I like you. I'm personally fond of you. And I know that you uh, put the uh, interest of the people of Connecticut and the people of the United States first uh, and not your own. So it's my job sometimes to tell you why it's in your own best interest to uh, to vote to approve this deal. Now, we found out over the weekend that Lawrence Kudlow, who is a gibbering idiot, uh, has said that he is going to run against you uh, if you vote to approve this deal. So that's why you should vote to approve this deal. I mean, you get Lawrence Kudlow as a possible future opponent in your next election. It's a guaranteed victory. Have you thought about that? <laughs> uh, I think this is an appropriate place for me to say no comment. <laughs> but thanks for the unsolicited advice, Don. Right. I, I value your friendship and always your advice. Yeah, no, I'm always thinking about you, and I know that you're so unselfish, you know, thinking about the people of Connecticut, that somebody's got to every once in a while whisper in your ear, you know, there's a whole other set of pieces in this board game uh, that you're not looking at. Well, U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal, thank you so much for joining us today. When will we know? Do you have, have you given yourself a deadline? When will we know from you where, where you Sometime come down? within the next couple of weeks. All right. So uh, until then, uh, let's hope the filibuster holds. Uh, All right. (laughs) Thanks very much. Thanks for joining us. I want to thank uh, everybody who helped out on today's show, uh, including especially Betsy Kaplan, who is our producer, uh, and Kyone Wolf, who's on the board. But also we were having some... We are having sort of complicated things that happen here, so Tucker Ives jumped in. Katie Tularski, the big kid, has been on the phones for us today. We've got an exciting group of shows coming up this week. Tomorrow, a show about obsolescence, why the things in your life have to stop working, even if they really don't need to stop working. It's all part of a growth economy. On Thursday, also, we have a pretty exciting show coming up about black holes. And uh, on Wednesday, we have a show about working for Hunter Thompson. So uh, lots of fun coming up this week. Thanks for tuning in today. And we'll talk to you tomorrow. Mutations. Mr. Bear, is it true that you destroyed three trash cans on West Boulevard? Yes. And is it true you dug up Mrs. Franklin's vegetable garden? Yes. Is it safe then to say that you are indeed a bad news bear? I invoke my Walter Matthau right not to testify.